0: So we're in this series, it's all about the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And all we're trying to do is take a look at the words of Jesus and compare who we are to how Jesus said we should live and maybe find a few places where we can sort of come in line with who Jesus says we should be or how we should think or how we should feel. And we're going to continue this in 2022. I mean, in two weeks, we'll start our Advent series, if you can believe it or not. That's just crazy. I mean, it's kind of hard to believe that Christmas is that close when it's 70 degrees and sunny out. I, mean, I can't remember the last time I was in Colorado and didn't have snow by this time in the year, uh, but I'm grateful for it. I mean, I hope it comes later, blah, 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 we need the moisture and all the things you're supposed to say. But for the most part, I'm digging this, uh, this fall. It's a beautiful time. So, But we'll take a look at a passage in the Sermon on the Mount. We're not even through Matthew 5 yet that I think is particularly appropriate for our culture and for now, and we'll kind of follow it up next week with the same stuff, but still Sermon on the Mount, same subject, okay? My hope is, is that the stuff that we'll touch on will help you for the holidays, because you're gonna be around some crowds, maybe some people you haven't been around before in, in a while, maybe some places that you haven't been in a while. You might be around some family that you haven't seen in a while, and it could be that some things rise up in you, and maybe the words of Jesus are some things that you ponder or think about, this week and next week will help you chart a different kind of path. Before we get to it, let me kind of set some context for this part of the Sermon on the Mount, okay? So Jesus says several times in this portion, Matthew 5, he starts with this phrase, he says this, you have heard that it was said, and then he says some things about a subject or whatever, and then he follows it up with, but I say to you. And if you've read the Sermon on the Mount, this isn't news to you. You've seen that this is there. And it's in this chapter. And Jesus says this six different times. Now, he does this because Jesus is a a rabbi. And a rabbi has one job. He's supposed to open up the law or the words that God had given to his people about what it means to know him and live for him and live with each other and what that means, how that all works out in the details. And the prophets. And a rabbi is supposed to open it up and say, well, this is what it says, and I want you to know this is how I interpret it. This is a rabbi's job, interpret the law and give it meaning. This is what it means to live it. This is what it looks like. This is how it's translated into your daily life. And Jesus, as a rabbi, has disciples. He's going to teach, and he's going to articulate his understanding of the law. He's going to do it a little bit differently than most of the rabbis. In fact, he's going to do it differently. Well, the gospel writers would say he teaches as one with authority. So what Jesus does is is vastly different than anybody had done before. So he's going to say, uh, you have heard it said, but I say to you. As he interprets the law, he's going to peel back layers of what the Old Testament means. Some of you have made some attempts to read through the Old Testament, have stopped, you know, or maybe you've read the law or Leviticus or Deuteronomy and you thought, oh, I just don't even know where to start. Jesus is going to take some of the most complex things in the law and make them very, very simple and take you to really the heart of the meaning. And to get there, you have to peel back some layers and he's going to do that but right before he said this. I'm going to interpret the law for you. He said this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, "Don't misunderstand why I have come." And I would dare say that most of us, when we read Scripture or encounter the teachings of Jesus or have a relationship with Jesus, many of us, even like those in the first century, have misunderstood why Jesus came. We missed the point. We find ourselves searching and not finding it, he goes on to say, I did not come to get rid of the law or abolish it, the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to, say it with me, these three words, accomplish their purpose. And so Jesus says that everything that's written in the law and the prophets point to what he's gonna say. And this is important because what Jesus is gonna say is very different than what the law says. But he's going to peel back the layers and interpret it for us. It's what a a rabbi does. So when he says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, it's important because it helps us understand the rest of the Bible. All of scripture, it peels back the layers so that we have an understanding of it. And we need it because the Bible is a confusing, difficult to understand book. It's written in different languages, different culture. So Jesus is going to help us with that. And to help us with that, he's going to start at one of the most difficult places for us, one of the most hard-to-understand, universally experienced emotions that we have. And that is probably the most prevalent in our culture today, and it's anger. And so I don't know if you're paying attention to culture, but if you are, then I think most people would say the only time I'm happy is when I'm what? apparently when I'm angry. In fact, the only time I'm content is when I'm venting. The only time I can find my footing is when I'm able to express anger. And you can see it in every board meeting, whether it's a a county board, a school board, or a church board, it doesn't matter. You can see it in your neighborhood. You can see it among... Those pundits that we see on TV, you can see it among your neighbors, and maybe you even see it among your friends. And my guess is, is that you have some of your own about that anger. Because anger is one of the emotions, like many of them, that begets or gives birth to itself. And you know this. When you interact with somebody, somebody comes up to you on the street, or somebody you know very well has a comment or an observation and it pokes at you and it makes you feel angry and you express that anger often what comes back at you is anger and then it finds itself compounding like the interest on your credit card and it comes bigger and bigger and bigger it's cumulative and in our culture this is a problem And so it's incredibly appropriate that Jesus would speak about this and that maybe we would dig into it before we get into the holidays and we find ourselves in some experiences that might bring about in us some anger. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to see if you can ponder a time recently when you have been angry. For some of you, it might be very easy to come up with a few instances like that. The more recent, the better. The more intense, the better. The more people involved, the better. That's great. If something doesn't come to mind for you already... Since I said that 10 seconds ago, then you might want to ask somebody who lives with you or knows you well, when was the last time I was angry? And they'll have a day and time for you. They'll help you remember the discussion, what it was about. They're incredibly accurate historians regarding your anger, as you are regarding their anger. So see if you can think about the time. And when you're thinking about this instant, it's, you're trying to call it to mind. And the only reason, we're not going to share it, right? We're not going to talk about it. You're going to ponder it. And you're going to ponder it for the purposes of a, an autopsy, if you will, right? We're going to think about what happened and, and the instant around it, the, the emotions surrounding it, the, you know, what pushed, what poked, who was involved, what was it really about, all of those kinds of things. And it's important that you have something tangible to sort of work with. Okay, just like shop class. You want to put your hands on it and around it. You want to be able to deal with it. And while you ponder that, we'll talk a bit about anger. Anger is maybe not the best word to describe anger. There's lots of words for anger. But anger, like a lot of emotions, is cumulative, but it's also progressive. And here's what I mean by that. We can describe anger with all of these words, and you could probably think of a few. But anger usually doesn't start off as full-blown anger. It usually starts off with somebody being annoyed or irritated, and these sort of low-level feelings where you just have a sense that either things aren't right or you're uncomfortable or you sure didn't appreciate that, something like that. And then over time, it grows to what might be considered outrage. And in the middle are things like exasperation or, you know, maybe a low-level anger. And these are the things that happen when we deal with anger. So we said that anger is a cumulative emotion, and what that means is that if you feel something, you kinda keep it with you, and then if you don't deal with it or address it or maybe try to understand it or finally just get rid of it, then it's going to accumulate over time. And as it accumulates, then you find yourself dealing with anger that you had last week and the week before and last month, and all of a sudden, you've worked all the way up to outrage. Now you can see this with people and it can happen in real time. I'll never forget. Donna and I were on a flight pre-COVID, plane flight, plane was full, you know, no masks. This was all before the pandemic. And we were sitting, I don't know, about three rows behind two individuals who were sitting, you know, one in front, one behind, rows of three. And it was clear that there was some tension. I don't know if it was in the getting seated process or if it was in some words that were exchanged. But when they sat down, I don't think they knew each other at all. But there was some tension between them. And we saw that rise throughout the flight. And it was, it was like watching a little in-flight movie for us. You know, I mean, it was right there in front of us happening. And as it happened, there were some short, terse words. There were some pushing and some kicking of a seat and some turning around and some glances, and you could see that, oh, this thing probably started out as just annoyed, but before long, it got to exasperated, and I'll never forget the moment. We're sitting there on the flight, and somebody had pushed a chair, and all of a sudden, an individual, the one sitting behind, stood up, and all I saw was his arm come from really high, and it lasted about 10 seconds, but he just began swinging, and the whole plane collectively lost their breath. They just thought, I mean, you can feel it now, right? You feel it now? I feel it. Um, I'm, I'm just nervous talking about it. And when it happened in front of me, you know, you know it, it all just happened in a flash. And then Don and I looked at each other and thought the exact same thing. We're going to be talking about this for years, <laughs> right? And it's awful. It's awful. It's horrible. And, of course, somebody got arrested, you know. Uh, By the time we landed the plane, they were, you know, meeting some air marshals. Um, And it was this moment where we saw anger sort of start as an embryo, if you will. And then it just became a full-blown birth and outrage ensued. So you now are pondering a moment when you were angry. My guess is it didn't come to blows, although it may have, you know, none of us are above it. And as you ponder this anger and you think about the different names that we give to anger, some of these will come to mind and you'll have others. But if they aren't dealt with or handled over time, then what occurs is this sort of area of resentment. It's, it's anger that has become stale. It's just laid there. And the resentment that you have could be pointed at or addressed to or may be blamed on any number of things. Now, you and I are smart enough to know that often the thing that we're angry about is not the thing that brings about our anger, right? You know this. Something will happen in your life and you'll blow up and you'll think, I don't know what that was about. I got angry, but it wasn't about that. There must be something else. And it's because something has stayed deep within that you haven't dealt with. Now, with all that in mind, Jesus has some things to say about anger and they're uh, controversial to say the least. And when Jesus talks about anger, he goes a bit nuclear, if you will, okay? And here's what he says. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not, what? So the very moment that Jesus is gonna talk about anger, he brings up murder. He's just gonna say it. And in this context, in this paragraph of teaching, would've taken Jesus two minutes to say all that he's gonna say about anger. He starts with the idea of murder. Now remember what I told you, he's a rabbi and he's quoting the law and the law makes it clear. Murder's not allowed, okay? I don't know what society you lived in or what you thought Jewish life was like or what was expected of the people of Israel, but murder was not on the list of allowable experiences an expression of rage or anger. You can't do it, no murder. It's a good rule, isn't it? It's a good rule. I'm glad we have the rule. You have heard that it was said, and he quotes right from the law, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And then Jesus says this. But I tell you that anyone who is, what? Angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And the first time I read this, I thought, Well, I mean, if they're the same, you might as well go ahead and do it, (laughs) right? Just get her done. I mean, if judgment's the same, you just might as well just take it all at once. Why build it up over time? Of course, this is not what Jesus is saying, is he? In fact, Jesus isn't saying that murder and anger are the same at all. All he's saying, and he'll do this six different times, is that they are connected. And so how are murder and anger connected? He uses them in the same context. And he's saying that if you murder, you're gonna be subject to judgment. But if you're angry, you're subject to judgment. He didn't say the punishment was the same. He didn't say that the result would be the same. But he is saying that they are related. And so he's going to begin to peel back the layers to help us understand why they're related. And when you ponder your own anger, what Jesus says next should change our course, how we deal with our anger and how we view it, how we process it, and how attentive we are to it. Because to miss the point, in other words, if you don't understand why Jesus has come, we'll find ourselves in a place where we're under that judgment that he spoke of. And that is a heavy burden to carry. You don't want to carry it. So he goes on to say what it all means. And this is what he says. Again, same context, same paragraph, the very next verse. Anyone who says to a brother or sister... Raka. Say it with me, raka. I mean, he said not to say it and we just said it, but we're just quoting, so it's okay. Anyone who says to a brother or sister raka is answerable to the court. And Jesus is referring to the Sanhedrin, the high Jewish court. And he's saying, you, you, if you're angry with somebody, you could be brought before them and they could hand you the punishment that would be due to you. This word raka is incredibly unique. It's a strange word. It's not even a Greek word. It's an Aramaic word. And it's a word in this context, in the original manuscripts, that's only included in this one place in the entire New Testament, raka. And scholars really don't know what it means exactly. They have some ideas. In fact, when you say it in Aramaic, almost in English as well, but it's a little more violent in Aramaic when you say it, and you say raka, it sounds like you're gathering whatever you've got down here to bring it about to right here so that you can prepare to expel it onto somebody else. In fact, there's a translation that uses this in such a literal way that they say that raka means anyone who spits in the face of a brother or sister. And in first century Jewish life, if you were to say raka in Aramaic, it would sound like that's about what you're gonna do. sounds like you're about to as we would say in Kentucky, hockaloogie. And so, this, this idea, of course, is that I think so little of you that I can put what is just disgusting on you without any thought at all. Jesus isn't done. He's going to give you a little more context. He goes on to say this And anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. And literally what it says here in the Greek is that you will be in danger of the fire of Gehenna or the, the trash pit that was on the outside of Jerusalem, not hell itself, but it looked a lot like hell, smelt like hell, looked, you know, it's on fire, hell-like for sure. But this is what you're saying, you'll be in danger of moving yourself to a place of refuse or worthlessness. And you say to somebody, you fool. You fool. Now, these two ideas are pretty much the same, raka or you fool. They both essentially mean that your sense of someone else that flows from your anger is that someone else is worthless, that someone else has no merit, or godless, that they have no imprint of God on them at all. Now, all of this sums up really the meaning of one word. And even though these words are a little bit difficult to grasp or you know, have some different meanings in different cultures and a little bit unknown, scholars all agree that they could be summed up by this word, contempt. Contempt, it's a great word. We don't use it very much. But contempt describes what Jesus says is the source or the underlying feeling behind anger. And contempt, Jesus says. Well, when you feel contempt for somebody else, you're in a very dangerous place because you are making a valuation regarding their worth and whether or not they even bear the image of God. And I know what you're thinking, but do you know who they voted for? Do you know what they think about me? Do you know what their opinion is on? You fill in the blank. And Jesus would say, yes. Do you understand that God knit them together and breathed his life into them and called them good? And what you're doing is calling what God made good worthless which means that you will feel eventually the same way that you have evaluated them to be. In other words, well, you'll find yourself, your own self-esteem, your own worth worthy of being out on the edge of Jerusalem on a trash heap because you have made a judgment about somebody, completely unfair. This is a good definition of contempt right from the dictionary. It's the feeling that a person is beneath consideration, worthless, or deserving scorn. This is so important. Jesus is saying that, look, if if we're going to peel back the action of murder, right underneath it is rage. It's rage, outrage. We could even just call it intense anger. But if we're going to peel back anger, we're going to find exasperation and annoyance and irritation and all the minor forms that make you just want to hit somebody or maybe just flip them off or or maybe be rude to them or, or maybe just think bad thoughts about them. But as we peel back even our thoughts about anger, here's what you'll find. You'll find contempt. And contempt, well, contempt is cancer. Contempt is a feeling where you have made a judgment about somebody else, and that, my friends, that's above your pay grade, way above your pay grade. Contempt is such a cancerous thing. Dr. John Gottman, he's a famous psychologist, marriage counselor, marriage therapist. Over the years, he's studied Marriage and what makes marriage work and what keeps two people together and able to survive, you know, betrayal and infidelity, all number of things. And uh, he's famous for being able to watch videos of couples interact together for about a minute, two minutes, and predict within about a 97% degree of accuracy whether or not they will stay married. It's pretty incredible. It's like a parlor trick except his understanding of marriage goes far beyond the superficial. He's famous for identifying what he would call the four horsemen of the apocalypse in marriage. And there are four things that he identifies as habits and communication interaction sort of characteristics. And he can see these between a couple, and when he sees them, he knows they are not going to make it. And there are some things, there's four of them obviously, criticism and defensiveness, stonewalling, those are three. But there is one that stands above all the others as being the most prominent indicator that this relationship is going to be at odds, so much so they will divide their assets. And that is contempt. The idea that a person is beneath consideration. Now, The reason this is such a big deal is because we understand that anger has this basis in contempt. But of course it has its basis in things like pride and selfishness. And it occurs for each of us, if this is the case, if this is the definition we're working with, it occurs on a relational level. Anger is a relational offense. And so if you ponder the moment that you... We're considering when we asked you to, you know, remember a time when you were angry, then you'll probably agree that the anger that you had was some sort of relational offense. Your your anger, my anger, when I have it, when I feel it, when it bubbles up in me, has a target. And that target is usually another person. It's not always another person out here. But it's usually another person because somebody has hurt me, betrayed me, um, done something to me, gotten in my way, slowed down in front of me. It could be trivial, it could be massive, it could be in between. But usually my anger or my contempt has a target. Usually it's a person. Sometimes there is no one to blame. And when there's no one to blame, we blame God. And when we blame God, we have contempt for God. And we say, you know, if I was in charge, what I would have done is, in other words, I know better than you. Contempt, it's the same thing. It's a relational offense. Sometimes your anger isn't directed at somebody out here. Sometimes it's not even directed at God. For a bunch of you here in this room and online, your anger is directed at you. And the same rules apply. The contempt that you feel for yourself, well, that's a very one-way ticket, very quick trip to Gehenna, the trash heap on the outside of Jerusalem that reminds us of hell. We're so upset with how stupid we were or how incompetent we are or how we can't seem to get it right or how we fail every time. And Jesus would say that your anger, if it's directed at yourself, is just as unholy, just as destructive, just as debilitating as if it were directed at somebody else. You can murder somebody else with your thoughts and your feelings and your recrimination, your opinions. You can do the same thing to yourself. And some of you do that on the daily. It's a relational offense regardless and it is contempt it's a evaluation of all the things that we believe matter most now jesus isn't done talking about anger with this passage he's going to talk about it in at least two or three different ways in this chapter and the chapter to come and we'll touch on them next week to kind of button this up but I want you to ponder the moment that you identified before we're done today when you were angry. And I want you to consider it this way. Like we said, anger is a cumulative emotion. So imagine that you have a backpack and the backpack is empty when you start the day. And you have a, an exchange on the way out, you know, with somebody in your house, maybe your family, maybe a spouse, or maybe a text from somebody at work, and you can feel the anger begin to rise up. And you take that little anger moment, and you take that little rock or, or whatever you want to represent your anger, and it goes right in your backpack. And then something else happens later that day or the next week, or, and you just keep putting these things in. This is a burden that you were not meant to carry. You were not meant to bear it. And it builds contempt, annoyance, irritability, eventually outrage, and maybe resentment for the people that you interact with that God has called you to love. You see, it's true that the opposite of love is apathy. That's true. But the enemy of love is anger. Anger prevents you from loving well. And you know, as well as I do, that when you love well, you feel God in you, you feel God moving through you, you feel God doing things in your life that you otherwise would not experience. And God wants you to experience a life like that. So we said, you'll miss the point of why Jesus came, because he said, look, don't misunderstand why I have come. But then he'll say it a different way. In Matthew, he says, I came to fulfill the law. That's one way to say it. Here's another way to say the exact same thing. I have come that they may have life and have it to the what? To the full. He says in this same context that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Anger will steal, kill, and destroy every time. And so what do we do with that angry moment? What do we do with our bitterness or resentment? What do we do with these feelings where we find ourselves eventually feeling contempt? We feel like our anger is justified. We feel like it belongs to us. Like because of what happened, it should have been. Here's a little translation note for you. So, you know, it says in Matthew, anyone who is angry with, her, with his brother or sister In later translations, you'll see it in your Bible. Look it up when you get home. There's a little footnote, a little letter that tells you, you know, there's something more to be learned here. So you'll look at the bottom or click on it if you're on your computer. And it will say, some later translations say, without cause. So let me put it all together for you. Later, when this was being translated, Matthew 5 and the bit about anger, there were some scribes who thought... This seems unreasonable. And so they added the phrase, and scholars are almost certain that the phrase was added at a later time, without cause. So you can be angry as long as you have what? Cause. Are you ever angry without cause? No, of course not. And of course this wasn't, in fact most scholars are in 100% agreement that This was never a part of the original text. So what does that mean? It means the anger that I put in my little backpack has got to come out. I can't carry it with me. And I've got to hold it. And I've got to look at it. And I've got to ask these questions. What made me angry? Why was I entitled? Why did I feel like this was owed to me? What pride or selfishness fed my anger that made me feel like I was right and they were wrong. Only when we begin to autopsy or diagnose this anger can we then lay it aside. Otherwise, it stays in the backpack, and some of your backpacks are weighing you down, and it keeps you from having life to the full. You can hang on to your anger as long as you want, but today, God is beginning to ask you the question, do you want to set it down? And you can if you want to. So let me guide you through it. Moment of prayer, okay? Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes and, and we'll go through this, but maybe it will give you some insight as to how to do this this week. So Lord, we read in your word how you feel about anger. And so we wanna take your words very serious because we are followers of your son. And so when your son Jesus it tells us that anger is, is very dangerous. It's an emotion that needs to be paid attention to. We want to do that. So Lord, give us the gift of insight as we ponder and consider maybe a, a moment this past week when we had anger that overflowed. Maybe it came out in words. Maybe we buried it deep and it just began to feed our resentment bucket. Lord, our hope and our prayer is that we would be so thoughtful as to acknowledge it, address it, deal with it. Lord, if if anger is the enemy of love, then the antidote for anger must also be love. And if love feels like too great a mountain for us to climb in a relationship or a circumstance, help us at least to show kindness. Lord, we believe that kindness is the, the tutor of love. It, it teaches us how to love. And so we know what kindness looks like. A generosity of spirit. Giving Mercy letting go and setting it down, our offense. So, Lord, as anger becomes the virtue of our society today, help us to swim the other direction. Help us to run the other direction. Help us to embrace love and kindness even in the face of anger, even in the face of rage. Lord, we cannot do this on our own. We need the power of your spirit. We need many times of failure in between now and then. We need every bit of you living in us, moving through us that we may love well. But we pray that this week, that as angry thoughts and emotions swirl within us, that we will acknowledge, understand, discuss, Lord, even those of us listening and here in the room that that can't even remember a time when we were angry, help us to have the courage and the boldness to say to someone we love or live with, hey, uh, where, where do you see it in my heart? Where do you see it in my voice, in my actions, and how I live? Lord, we desperately want to see in each other the God image that you created them with. This is the love we want to bring to the world. So Lord, it is not us, it is you and you alone. And we ask that you would guide us this week to walk on this path.